Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. Two guests this week, uh, if you are women's basketball watchers, readers, or fans, they don't need really introductions, although I will give that to them anyway, or give that give them introductions anyway. Rebecca Lobo joined ESPN in 2004 as a WNBA and women's college basketball analyst and reporter. She is a former college All-American at UConn. I'm sure you've heard of that school. A WNBA All-Star and Olympic champion, a member of the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, and just an all-around great person who I was privileged to hang out with a little bit in Beijing. Always a good place to hang out with Rebecca Lobo in China. Um, LaChina Robinson is the hardest-working person, in my opinion, in women's hoops. She has a myriad of jobs in women's basketball, including working for... Deep breath, because there's too many employers, LaChina. ESPN, Fox Sports, Raycom's ACC Women's Basketball, The Atlanta Dream, and ESPNW. She played her college hoops at Wake Forest. Go look her up on YouTube. Rebecca Lobo and LaChina Robinson, thank you very much for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast today. Thanks for having us. I will say that when Rebecca and I work together, my request is often that we don't put the bios up because <laughs> Rebecca's is, like, ridiculous. And then there's, oh, LaChina. Um, little blurb on the map, but you made me sound. You expanded my territory, so thank you, Richard. I know I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't go into whatever <laughs> you know. Nineteen ninety-five Player of the Year, uh, Sullivan yeah. Award. I don't. It's Lobo's uh, bio is. It's annoying. It's yeah. it's, it's, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. like. Uh, yeah, it, it might as well be like the size of like a presidential memoir at this point. It's it's a little yeah. too much. Crazy. Uh, Rebecca, you still there? Or, or, Richard, as you know, like once you become a parent, none of that matters. Like all I am is this is Russian. I mean, I coach all of my kids' teams in basketball, and they don't care one bit about any of that stuff. Yesterday, I'm teaching an eighth grader, talking to her about her free her form on the free throw line, and she's got this whole routine. I said, "You got to get rid of that routine. You have too much stuff going on." This kid looked at me and she said, "What's your routine?" And I just think it was unbelievable. <laughs> I said, my routine was to make my free throws. Now get up there and get a different routine. So anyway, none of the bio stuff matters once you become a parent anyway. That's true. I love it. I love the fact. No no, no respect uh, for, for the resume. <laughs> All right. So yesterday on The Athletic, I put out my um, top 10. And so I'll, I'll give you my top six here. Notre Dame, no surprise. Uh, Oregon, number two. UConn, Baylor at number four. Louisville at number five. And Mississippi State at number six. Um, So that's sort of where I'm thinking. So here's where I want to start. And I'll start with you, LaChina. Let's start with Notre Dame. Just briefly in that um, I think most people, and rightfully so, uh, will have them as the number one preseason team. They, to me, have far and away, if they're healthy, the best chance of winning. Uh, there are NBA, WNBA pros all over the court, and Muffet McGraw is coming off a unbelievable coaching job with a uh, limited bench, and now she has options everywhere. It's almost to me as if Notre Dame's biggest challenge is to figure out a way where you can make all that talent happy, given that they all can't play. That's my thought on Notre Dame's biggest challenge this year. What's your thought? Um, wow. Uh, I would agree with that. You know, I think it's going to be interesting to watch what happens with Notre Dame um, trying to repeat because when you think about their first national championship, they lost everyone, you know, all their big pieces after that, Ruth, Ruth Riley, Neil Ivey. And so 
um, and and Rebecca probably knows this from being around UConn, that it, it's hard to do it again, right? So first of all, how do you deal with the pressure? I think that will be a challenge. Um, you know, the return of Brianna Turner is what expands the conversation that you brought up about, okay, are there enough basketballs? How does the chemistry work? Um, she's an All-American, can get up and down the floor. We'll remind you a lot of Natasha Howard that we watched in Seattle this year, the WNBA, um, slippery, um, can catch the oop pass. So it, it will be interesting in terms of how all those pieces fit together. You've got Jess Shepard, who was their anchor last year, um, who I think is, is totally underrated from some of the ratings I've seen preseason in terms of where she ranks in the post players, uh, the best post players across the country. But the one interesting piece to me, uh, Richard and Rebecca, as it pertains to how this year's team will come together, is really Jackie Young. You know, Jackie Young, we saw her break out in the NCAA tournament. I think when you look at upside, she's the best player on this team. Now, I know you think I'm crazy after Arike Agumbawale hit the shots we saw her hit in the national championship, the Final Four. But Jackie's size at six foot, her defensive prowess, she's long, extremely athletic. I mean, I don't see very many bodies on the basketball court like Jackie Young. And she's coming into her own, right? And we've seen her um, have flashes of brilliance and look like she can be the best player in the country. So how does Muffet then continue to grow that, but also obviously the talent that's around Jackie, that's around Arike and how all those pieces, I mean, they could really be an impressive machine. And last year, um, you know, she didn't have a, a, a deep rotation. So there wasn't a lot of substituting. So how will those starters respond to now having to share minutes um, with a young group that Muffet needs to develop uh, with pending graduation? Rebecca? Well, I think I think the, one of the big things they have playing in their favor with the 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 players that they have and, and the number of options they have is the pace that they can play. You know, when, when they're really playing like, like they want to play, they're going up and down the floor, they're getting out in transition, they're scoring a lot, there's going to be a lot of possession. And so there's going to be a lot of uh, opportunity for a variety of players to touch the ball and score. And they're the type of offense where they do move the ball around and, and, and play, a lot of players do touch. And, you know, China, as you know, Players, of course, everybody likes to score, but everyone just wants to be involved in some way in the offensive possession. You want to be able to make the pass that sets up the shot. You want to be able to set a good screen that gets somebody open. And they run an offense where it's not just isolations on different parts of the floor. Everyone can feel involved uh, on every offensive possession, even if they're not taking the shot. And I think that's a big part of it. I think that's why um, Coach McGraw's players enjoy playing so much in her system, is you can really feel involved. Uh, with things. I mean, it, it's funny when you look at the projections this year, of course, uh, you know, unanimously people have uh, voted Notre Dame as, as the favorite coming into the season, but they were a bit of a surprise to win it a year ago. I did the game when they were out at Louisville and looked horrible and, and got crushed and couldn't break the press. And, and it was, had to be one of their more embarrassing losses. They were able to regroup. And then somehow with such a limited bench, with all the injuries that, that they were dealing with, you know, they they won the national championship after after two buzzer beaters. Uh, you know, so it's not like they were the team that was favored to win it last year. It was a surprise, and so for them to then do that, have all those players returning, including Agumbawale, who made those miraculous shots, add Turner to the mix, add a good freshman class to the mix. Uh, you know, the one thing is with Coach Coach McGraw, you know, you're going to do it her way, and uh, she's been successful. 
you know, keeping players happy over the years. Um, you know, it's going to be fun to, to watch, you know, as this team moves along, especially I'm, I'm really eager for that December 2nd matchup when UConn uh, goes to South Bend because I think that's going to tell you a lot uh, about the Notre Dame team. Yeah, that's well said, Rebecca. Having talked to Muffet um, prior to the year, she said that, the December 2nd game is when you learn what your weaknesses are. And the good thing about December 2nd is you obviously have enough time to fix whatever those weaknesses are. So I think both teams like that. And I don't think both teams will really be bothered by a loss. Um, so, LeChan, I'll go back to you. And again, this may be me. You're welcome to tell me I'm an idiot here. But I, I, when, I look at the, when I look at the teams around the country, I do think to myself, if I'm being honest and realistic, there is only a finite amount of teams that can win the title. Now, obviously, I guess there's always that possibility. Some team comes out of nowhere and just goes on a great run. But in my opinion, Notre Dame, Oregon, UConn, Baylor, and then there's a line, and maybe I'll give you Louisville, Mississippi State, and maybe Oregon State because Destiny Slocum is a very, very interesting figure there but I really think and maybe this sometimes happens and I mean in certain years I think people think there's only one or two teams that can win my thought is that realistically I'm going to be honest there's five or six teams that realistically have a chance to win this year there's maybe 30 teams that could have a great year when you look at it under that construct are you with me or am I being or am I undercutting some other teams that if they get on a roll have a chance to win a national title um, I think that's fair. Uh, I definitely think there's a line. I would probably add Stanford to that group. You know, when you look at, um, you know, Tar Vanderveer's team and, and last year being rather young, I love their point guard and Keanu Williams. Alana Smith is a really good player. Um, they put up 100-plus points, which we're not used to seeing yeah. from Stanford Cardinal team. And we already know that uh, they get it done on the defensive end. Like, that is, that's their staple um, so I would add them to that mix. But, you know, it, it's a long season, right? We don't want to put anyone in the corner. But I just think what we've seen happen um, over the last few years is, you know, the, what experience does for you, right? Like Don Staley, you know, when they won the national championship, they kept knocking on the door. They had the best player of the country. Everyone knew it. But it took getting to the Final Four, losing, being in those situations, understanding the pressure, and who's been there the way UConn has, the way Notre Dame has. Um, you know, Mississippi State has now gotten that experience that I think gets you over the hump. And, and that's where Mississippi State and Louisville, in my opinion, are firmly in that group, I would probably say. I know you kind of put them in as an add-on. Um, I, I would say they're firmly there. I mean, Jeff Walls has done it again and again, getting to the Final Four. Asia Durr is unstoppable, as yep. we know, and, and their talent um, is incredible. So, I would agree with that group, but I would I would also add Stanford. Um, again, keeping in mind that it's a long season, and there's some other teams that could be knocking on the door as well. And China, I think uh, you bring go, up something that doesn't get talked about enough on the women's side because you don't have players leaving early. Experience is huge. Being in that moment is huge. And and when you get to the Final Four, Vic Schaefer was talking to us about it last year. He said he would do things differently than he did them the previous year. And, and when you get to the Final Four, it's so much about what is surrounding the games, all of the commitments your players have, especially if you have All-Americans, and, and, and the different things, the functions they have to go to. The media for most teams, probably every team yeah. other than UConn, the media that they have to deal with is so far and beyond anything that they've dealt with the entire regular season. 
So while there may be other teams that are talented enough maybe to, to, to get there, DePaul goes on a run and has all these scores and gets to the Final Four, once you get there, experience plays a much bigger factor, I think, on the women's side than it does on the men's side because you have players who, who are in their senior year or their grad year. It's not just a bunch of, of freshmen and sophomores. And, um, and understanding how to deal with that weekend goes a big it goes a big way in uh in your ability to win a national championship yeah watching uh zion williamson and rj barrett i i, I might be uh I, I might not think experience is going to be that important this year on the men's side we'll see though um the women's side though it's a really good point rebecca all right rebecca i want to stay with you this is the last sort of basketball one and then we're going to do a little sort of more media centric stuff but when i'm when i was evaluating uconn this year it it's um <sighs> You know, I, having obviously you've seen them more than me, but since 2001, I, I've seen a, a ridiculous amount of UConn games. So I, I would get, feel like I have a pretty good sense of the program. And one thing that always happens with great players is if they struggle as freshmen, um, Brianna Stewart, Mariah Jefferson, there's a long list. If they really are great and sort of have greatness within them, they take a huge step that sophomore year. And that's why Megan Walker is a very, very interesting player in UConn this year. And I might even argue the most important player in that I think that's the difference between maybe a championship and a Final Four appearance. But so here's, Rebecca, what I want to get with you. I, I probably would have had UConn as a number one if if um, if Stevens opted to stay an extra year, doesn't declare for the NBA WNBA draft and comes back, mostly because I think that that's the one place where UConn can be attacked and it's post-size, something you know about. So I just I want to get your sense of UConn and just how you would evaluate even my thinking on that um, is that fair that one player can make that big a difference because of her skill set, her size, or because it's UConn and because they've always been, we always sort of assume they're number one, maybe we're underestimating Katie Lou Samuelson and Collier and Dangerfield and how good Megan Walker and, um, and, um, why am I blanking on, and Kristen Williams? Yeah. So maybe I just, I, you know, I can't believe I'm saying this, but maybe I'm underestimating UConn this year for my own pre-bias because of who went to the WNBA draft. How do you, how do you, I know you're very close to that program. How do you look at them this year and, and what they are and what they could be? Well, I, I think it's fair because there's so much that you don't know. You know, Kristen Williams coming in as, as a top rated freshman, but you know, preseason, you know, most people hadn't seen her play, so didn't know what to expect from her. And you mentioned, you know, uh, Mariah Jefferson or Brianna Stewart or players who, you know, had to grow a lot from freshman to sophomore year. The difference between them and Megan Walker is that they still got an opportunity to, to play significant min- minutes their freshman year. There are a lot of times when Megan Walker, you know, didn't get a lot of time last year because Coach Oriama could yeah. be so frustrated with her. And the fact that she's earned her way into the starting lineup and has and played really well in, in their in their early uh, exhibition games and then in their first game bodes really well um, for her. But I think you're right. You know, if Azure Stevens came back, she would have been one of the favorites for the National Player of the Year. Such a different player, 6'6", Kevin Durant-like in her skill set. Um, I think a lot of teams, uh, people looking at it would, you know, probably have still given Notre Dame the edge, but would have thought it was a little bit closer coming into the preseason than now. Um, there's a lot more uncertainty this year. You know, Katie Lou Samuelson is one of the, one of the best uh, players. Nafisa Collier is going to have a great year. Crystal Dangerfield, you anticipate, but then you have two new start, two new starters, and a total question mark when it comes to their bench. And you know, you bring up the post play. It's true when when you 
you know, they generally have a three-post rotation, and when when that post, that you know, third one coming in off the bench, uh, or the first post in off the bench is a freshman, um, there's a lot of questions. And so, again, you you point for them again to that December second date with Notre Dame because um, you're gonna you're gonna see a lot. You know, how much um, can the young guys do in big moments? And uh, you know, Coach Oriama cannot say enough good things about Kristen Williams. Uh, he's really, really, really excited about her potential, partly because she has so much confidence to go along with the ability that she displays on the court. But, um, but yeah, they, they, all the coaches expected Azurea to be back, and uh, you know, it definitely would have been. Um, would have been a bit of a different team if she had returned. Yeah, Lachina, I'd be curious your take. You know, sometimes this is what happens. I remember. I remember being in the uh, Notre Dame locker room uh, and everybody expecting Jewel Lloyd was going to come back that next year. And I think during the mm-hmm. Final Four, she announced that she was going to declare. Or maybe it was after. Whatever it was. But the point is, you know, sometimes these great players decide, as they should, to go to go pro. And that was my thought, that just um, her jumping to the WNBA, I think at least in the preseason, has to change at least a little bit how you think about UConn. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing that trend, it seems like, happen more often over the last, you know, five or six years. I mean, we're having the same conversation about Sabrina Ionescu of Oregon. You know, I talked to her on Women's Basketball Media Day and like, hey, have you given this any thought? What are you thinking? And, of course, she gives you the, well, I'm just going to wait and see how this season goes. But she totally sounded open to you know, declaring. And so, you know, how that changes the the landscape on the women's side has, you know, it's been interesting, a good conversation over the last few years. But the one thing I'll be watching with UConn is really, you know, Gino talked about this in the preseason, that the two players that would need to grow the most over the course of this year are Katie Lou Samuelson and Nafisa Collier. And I want to see if they can be demanding because I think that's what they're going to need to be. When you look at UConn's successful teams over the years, whether it was back to Sue Bird or even Jen Rosati, you know, I think when Brianna Stewart was playing, it was more Morgan Tuck, even though people didn't realize it, who was that person who was like grabbing everybody by the throat. Um, you know, does that mentality exist on this team? I think you have to have that um, on any UConn team, at least from the ones I've seen that have been successful. I haven't seen that level of intensity from a leadership standpoint from Nafisa Collier or or Katie Lou, but I do think they'll need to develop that or be able to at least have that type of impact on the leadership side for this team to to be what I think they can be. All right, LaChina, I'm going to stick with you because we're going to talk about media accessible programs now. And um, one of the things I think all of us agree, and, you know, both of you work for big broadcasters, so when you're a rights holder, you know, you're going to get great access. My God, everybody, I'm sure, brings out the red carpet when Rebecca Lobo comes to town. But as a general rule, as a general rule, Women's basketball is great when it comes to access. Having covered other sports, um, it's it's unbelievable. Uh, it just the the players um, are thoughtful and smart, and will give you a ton of time. The coaches will give you a ton of time. It I, I find it to be it's one of the reasons I really love covering the sport. I just I find that I can cover it as opposed to um, being handled. But I would imagine, LaChina, that there probably are certain programs around the country that are better than others. So I want to start with you, and I think this will just be interesting for people who are listening because they probably don't often hear this question, but what are the programs around the country that you find really, really accessible for what you want? And maybe if you want, name some of the programs that you wish were a little more accessible when it comes to – when it comes to coverage and, and interacting with the media? Yeah. Um, 
Honestly, Richard, I don't have a lot of issue. Um, I just tell people I'm Rebecca Lobo and then, you know, I get in the door. But no, <laughs> um, I don't have a lot of issue with teams um, not giving me access. You know, I think the one thing that I love about this sport, and you just hit the nail on the head, is that, you know, these coaches understand that it's their job not just to coach, but to get exposure for the game. You know, like, I, I don't know that there's any other sport, and there probably is, I'm, you know, maybe over-exaggerating a little bit, but where the coaches have to not only coach their team, but they've got to market their sport, they've got to grow the game, they've got to try to get media involved. Like, when the basketball coaches understand the duty and the responsibility that comes along with, you know, their position. And whether it's Gino Oriema, who I'll say is probably at the top of my list because he does not have to give the type of access that he does give. He has never, I mean, he'll come over and talk to you at practice for 20, 25 minutes and give you historical perspective. And, you know, he's honest about, you know, where his team is. And he's, he's never said you can't come to practice, can't come to shoot or anything like that. Like has always opened his doors. And if, you can have the success that Gino Oriema has had and never close your doors to learning opportunities or to media coverage. Who can, right? Like it, yep. it's really, it's what I love about it. I mean, I, and I don't know, Rebecca, you can, you can share, uh, you know, what your thoughts are, but I, I very rarely have a coach say no. Now where I have met some resistance is when we want player access, right? So, um, and whether that's a head coach may be concerned about, you know, the player's ability to handle media um, or, you know, if it's a big game, not wanting them to get rattled. Like I have had situations where, you know, they're like, no, you can't talk to so-and-so player or you got to talk to him the day before the game or, you know, things like that. So I, I would say player access has probably been more limited than coaches access in my experience. Rebecca, the only reason I just want to sort of jump in here before you answer is, I mean, I think, I think we all have to be honest that you work for ESPN, you work for the primary rights holder of the sport, um, and and ESPN, and I've said this, listen, I have my certainly issues and complaints with ESPN, their coverage of women's basketball is not it. They, they do, your place basically is the reason, I think, for, or the biggest reason for the growth of the game, and so generally speaking, if you are a school, you would be insane not to give you guys what access you want. So I just want to ask you that same question, Rebecca, letting the audience know that it would seem to be insane to me on face if you didn't get whatever access ultimately your place wanted. I think teams, players, coaches are terrific with us. They really are. And, um, and what's fun actually sometimes is the teams that don't see us as often um, are even more embracing. You know, when we go out to do a Pac-12 game because we don't have as many Pac-12 games as we might SEC games, for example, they, you know, open their arms to us. They're thrilled to have us. It's, it's pretty much like whatever you need, we'll talk to you. You know, you, what players do you need? You know, what, what can we do to get more games on ESPN? What can we do to help you with, our, with your telecast? And on the women's side, too, they understand the part it plays in recruiting. You know, the coaches want to talk to us so that we'll tell their story and, 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 uh, and let people know about their teams. Um, you know, not only the fans, but the recruiting part of it too. So uh, I've had nothing but really good, um, you know, interactions with players and coaches that, that we cover. They, they seem happy that we're there. They're thankful that we're there. I think that's where it can be a little bit um, different than on the men's side. They're, they're not distrustful of us. I think 
for for a lot of reasons. Um, that can be, you know, I don't think many announcers have ever burned coaches when they've told you something in confidence. We're not trying to um, shed anything but a positive light on the players and tell their stories. So, um, you know, we have really, really good interactions with the players and coaches because they understand we're working together in a lot of ways to try to grow the sport. This is for you. We'll stick with you, Rebecca, and then Lachana, you can answer as well. Uh, Rebecca, understanding um, that you have ties to the UConn program, so I would expect Gino Ariama to be very candid with you, uh, either on air or off air. But as a general rule, can you tell people who are listening um, how forthcoming coaches are you in production meetings? And will they literally tell you stuff that would be, like if that actually got public, would give them a significant competitive disadvantage, but they're telling you out of trust in that it would help you guys with your broadcast? Yeah, they tell you, not only in production meetings, but we get to watch the shoot-arounds. So when we're at a shoot-around for a team, uh, which is a practice that they have in the morning before a game, you see their entire game plan. You see how they're going to be guarding their opponent. You see what they're going to try to exploit on the offensive end. It might be a player on their opposing team that they're going to go at, involve in more pick-and-rolls, or defensively they're going to double down from this part of the floor. You see exactly what they're doing. And if you ever, as a broadcaster, shared that with someone, you'd lose credibility and you pretty much wouldn't be able to work again. You wouldn't be able to go to the shoot-arounds. You wouldn't be able to prepare the way you need to prepare. And we all understand that. So when we go and see something, that's so once we can see it in a game, we can say, yeah, the coach worked on that and shoot around, or we know to look for that. All right, I know that when Tierra McCowan touches the ball for Mississippi State, that this is where the double team is going to come from, and it makes it easier for me to relay that to the audience. We get to see all of that stuff. We talk to the coaches about that game plan kind of stuff. They're very forthcoming with us, and we know to, you would never, ever share that until you were on the air talking about it. Because if you did, um, you would lose access and probably lose the opportunity to call the games because that would be the biggest breach of trust that you could have. LaChina, for you, same question, but this is an interesting one to me. Is do you is there any difference in um, how the uh, staffs treat you depending on who you are working for? Meaning if you're working for a bigger broadcaster, do you feel like you get more access? Or for you, has it been in those production meetings the same? Um, it's been pretty much the same. Actually, though, when Rebecca was talking, I was thinking about, you know, have there been any scenarios where I felt like I was kept in the dark? And I cannot remember particular games because I would tell you, but I remember vividly at least once a year this happens to me where there's a player that I think is going to start and they don't. And that that burns me a little bit, especially if it's the, like the best player. And I feel like in the last couple of years, it's happened at least once a year where the player that we choose to focus on um, all of a sudden isn't starting. Now, sometimes there's something that develops between shoot around and the game that, you know, you, you just you didn't know could happen. But then sometimes there's something that happened the night before the game. And, you know, they may be running through everything like they normally would, but that player is not going to start, you know. So those scenarios have happened from, from here to there. But in terms of anyone treating me different, you know, based on what network I'm working for, no, not at all. Um, I, I don't feel that. And I think in women's basketball, because, uh, you know, we just we don't have the volume that the men have necessarily, that they're seeing a lot of the same faces, right? So it, it's more about, less about the trust with the network and more about the trust with the actual talent. 
Um, you know, I mean, they're seeing us consistently promoting the game on social, you know, on different, working for different conferences. So I think it's more in how they feel about your commitment to the job you're doing than they do uh, the network necessarily. Rebecca, um, when reading or thinking about the media, um, of the cities around the country that are really strong when it comes to women's basketball information, um, it's always struck me that obviously the Yukon area, Hartford, Bristol, um, Seattle has always been a great women's basketball town when it comes to media. Minnesota has been really good in the last couple of years given the success of the links. And I now imagine when Lindsey Whalen at the University of Minnesota, they're going to local papers and hopefully radio and stuff will cover that more. Obviously, the Knoxville area because of the great history of uh, Tennessee. Starkville, I know uh, since Vic Schaefer's been there and they've had success, they're, they're staffing a lot of games. So there's coverage around the country in different parts. Nationally... I feel like uh, still there's so much further to go. Um, And again, ESPN is really the driver of all that. So a couple things, Rebecca, for you. First off, what in your – because you travel a lot, what cities have you found where just as a general – sort of a general rule, there's a lot of really good women's basketball coverage? All the cities that you mentioned, um, you'd have to throw South Carolina in there too in the last couple of years when they've gotten really good. Um, you know, the, the coverage tends to follow the fan base. And so what the college teams that have bigger fan bases um, tend to have better coverage. The, the one city that's always been frustrating for me, whether it's on the college level or in the WNBA, is in Los Angeles. You know, you, you, you're trying to look for articles or different things. And, uh, you know, there's just not a lot of coverage for the, from the L.A. Times uh, most of the time for, for the Sparks or if you're looking for stuff for UCLA or USC or whoever. Um, but generally, you know, it's, it's the markets that you mentioned. And the nice thing about the way media is now is that even if the local newspapers or local television stations, whatever, aren't covering teams, you can find information because there's somebody that's covering them for a blog or there's somebody that's covering them for, you know, electronic media, uh, you know, whether it's the athletic writing about them or or whoever, high post hoops, you know, you've got, you've got women's basketball blogs now that are, are producing content and creating content, giving us a lot more information so that we don't just have to rely on, on the newspaper coverage because in some places it's, it still is, you know, not very good. Same question for you, LaChina. Yeah, I mean, again, I think you, you hit all the markets on, on the head. I think, you know, two markets that frustrate me in particular sometimes that pertains to their women's basketball coverage is, um, Chicago and right here in Atlanta, you know, I think Chicago, especially with me traveling and covering DePaul, um, you know, the Chicago sky, especially when Elena Deladon was there, they've had some stars that, you know, I think did not get what they deserve from a media standpoint. Um, and here in Atlanta, I mean, it's been no secret that I have been very vocal about, you know, and yeah, the dream and you know, Georgia tech necessarily hasn't been as good the last few years, but, um, you know, Joni's got a great team up at Georgia, but I mean, the dream make an amazing run this year under new head coach, Nikki Collin. And I, the AJC is nowhere to be found. Um, and, and it's frustrating. Like I, I don't get it, especially in the summer where the news is, is slow on the sports side. Um, what are you doing? <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I've also seen the same trend with the Atlanta United, which is pulling in 70,000 fans, and AJC leaves them out, too. So um, those are two markets I would say frustrate me. What will be interesting off of Rebecca's point is, you know, women's basketball has found this space in social media, you know, where I think yep. it's been the best thing for the sport, where 
everyone can promote themselves, you know, and, and their fans are there and they're looking for information. But there is a demographic of women's basketball fans that are older, that are in their 50s, that are in their 60s, maybe even 70s, who have been fans for a long time. You see them in the stands at UConn. You see them in the stands at Notre Dame. You know, what happens as those fans start to trail off or, you know, retire or go and do whatever, you know, in, in coming years? Um, you know, what, who replaces those fans and, and how are we reaching them? Because it's funny, I'll get on social media and I don't ever really see a ton of Notre Dame, like Faithfuls or UConn Faithfuls in social media space. They, those are people that are still going to their local papers to read and are well covered and are able to do that. But, you know, it, it really poses a lot of questions and um, how the women's basketball fan base was built from the beginning, um, you know, and with the media coverage, newspapers, older fans, and then what will happen in the future. Um, you know, so that'll be an interesting trend, I think, to watch moving forward. But, um, you know, those are two markets in particular that I would like to see some improvements and major markets at that. So, Rebecca, I want to ask you about this because I think that this is a very good sign for the sport, and you hit on this a little bit. One of the things that I've seen in the last 10 to 15 years, I'm sure you've seen it too because I know how much you research, is um, proliferation of people online who have started women's basketball-centric either blogs or sites. So I'll give sort of a shout-out to some of them, Women's Hoops Blog dot wordpress.com they've been around for a while they're an incredible warehouse of all the stuff that's written about women's basketball every day it's i would say that's a vital place her hoop stats is um uh a new uh site founded by a guy who used to work in the nba doing uh statistics and now has done um analytics for women's college basketball like really like kind of high-end sabermetric stuff that we really never saw in the sports before that's really cool um, SB Nation has Swish Appeal, and SB Nation has really done kind of an amazing job of commitment online to covering a ton of women's basketball and WNBA. I know that Mel Greenberg, um, I think his is womhoops.blogspot.com. Uh, Again, another guy who's sort of just almost on a daily basis, which feels like for a decade now, putting women's basketball stuff out there. And as LaChina said, um, there's so much more social media now. And the players, especially WNBA players, are amazing. Women's college basketball players, I mean, some coaches don't want them to tweet. I get it. But the pros are amazing. You know, you follow, like, uh, Monique Curry or Sue Byrne or anybody else there. Phenomenal. So it strikes me, Rebecca, even though the progress hasn't been, like, super turbocharged, we, we have seen, I feel like, online some pretty amazing things. And even with the frustration of, in specific cities, maybe the coverage clearly not being as it should. I do feel like, and I just wonder if you feel too, some of these, um, we, we're getting better national coverage now just because there are people who have sort of dedicated, probably not at very little money, I mean, at uh, no profit to them. They've just decided because they love the sport to sort of chronicle all the stuff that's out there. And that's, at least for someone like myself who's a fan, that's been really helpful. So much more content to read and digest than ever before just for that reason. Even though it might be not, it not, might not be more column inches, in your local newspaper, there is so much more information out there to read. And, you know, even if it was 10 years ago, you're, you're trying to prepare for a game and you're, you're just, you know, reading the clips that the team sent you and it might take five or 10 minutes because there weren't that many. And now on a daily basis, you know, that's my Twitter feed is I'm just go, scrolling through and it's all right. I got to, uh, you know, I'm going to read that article and that article, the link to that article. There's so much more information. And it's not just on the top five teams. It's not just on the top 10 teams. 
it's you know on pretty much any team you want to find information on. And you mentioned uh, her hoop stats. Aaron has done a phenomenal job. You know now when when we're getting ready for for telecast, he's he's providing something that ESPN Research um, can't even provide. Some of the advanced analytics and and he's great about sending us information before games um, that just makes you think about things a little bit differently or, or it gives you uh, some metrics to back up a, a, a theory that you may have had on the game. So, I, you know, I encourage everybody, if, if you're into that, you know, advanced analytics to follow, to follow her hoop stats. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's so much more information and, 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 and you know, all the, all the, uh, all the ones that you mentioned, they all, you know, have a Twitter presence. They all link to their stories. And, and you're right. It's people who are just passionate about it. You know, they're they're not making much money off of this, if any money at all. They're doing it because they want more content out there. And if they haven't been able to find the content, they've decided to create the content for other people. And, and, and the China and I and, and all women's basketball fans are benefiting from that. Yeah, we'll just give a shout yeah. out to him. That's Aaron Barzali. I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but uh, he... Um... He was the former director of basketball analytics for the Philadelphia 76ers and now basically has taken, I mean, he's clearly one of these, you know, Silicon Valley genius types who is basically taking his mathematical um, abilities and turning that into what I think is just like fascinating stuff about women's basketball, which has never gotten this stuff. And now you can get like these stats that, um, that we, we get for other for the pros and for men's college basketball. LaChina, I didn't mean to interrupt you. What were you going to say? Oh, no, you're fine. No, I was just going to say, and I think it's helping with building a younger audience. You know, one thing that I know um, Howard Megdal at um, High Post yeah, has done quality is he's guy. tried yeah. to, yeah, he's tried to hire um, more diverse, more diversity. You know, I mean, it, you're seeing younger writers, you're seeing um, women and men of color, um, writing for for high post hoops. I mean, Hoop Feed has been a staple staple, and Cheryl Coward, what she's done, she kind of started yep. it. I feel like um, you know she edition Swish and Women's Hoops World. Um, but I, I think it's helping to definitely grow a younger and different audience and demographic. And then you have like I think it's women's Rebecca. You may know it's like WBB Timeline. I, I think is what it is. But they're committed to more the historical side of the game, which we don't have well-documented, you know? I mean, a lot of people don't know where to go to find the history of, of women's basketball, so that's an important, um, you know, aspect as well. And then another um, way that the game has been covered via social media that I think has been helpful is there's sites like Women's Basketball 24-7 that are committed to overseas coverage. I mean, you know, we both, we all know, Rebecca, Richard, you both, you know, women's basketball, WBA players go in the offseason. We don't know what's happening. Where are they? You know, who are yep. they playing with, that kind of stuff that is valuable information. I mean, when you come back to the WNBA, we find out, you know, you and your teammate have been overseas gelling and working on your chemistry for the last seven months. I mean, that's, that's important information. And so I, I like that it seems like the coverage is also expanding in that area, which gives women's basketball this holistic feel that it really needs, and they're finding that in the social space. Yeah, there's literally like 50 great documentaries to be made about some of these players playing in Israel or Russia, China, Turkey. Um, I mean, if you if you if you had the money and the crew, you would have you would really have amazing content because nobody really knows what these players are going through in these uh, foreign countries. It's really fascinating. Um, all right, so here's the last one. I'll get you guys out on this, and I appreciate your time um, because this is a podcast. And Lachana, we'll start with you. I want to talk about how, what you think the impact of women's basketball centric podcasts have been right now on. 
uh, popularity, fandom. Um, it seems to me yours is around the rim, um, so people should go uh, check that out. But you, to me, LaChina, are a pioneer in this space in terms of the women's basketball um, uh, podcasting space. I would say Beth Mowens and Debbie Antonelli, too. You guys, were, it seems like to me you were doing it, at least on a national level, before anyone. And I feel like there's still so much space for people to to have one of these pods. Like, I, I mean, I don't know this. Maybe Rebecca does. I don't think there's a well-known player who has their own podcast the way some of these NBA guys do. And I feel like there's just so much opportunity still in the podcast space. We're, we're just at the beginning when it comes to women's basketball. And I just wanted to get whatever your overarching thoughts are on that, LaChina, given that, to me, you're one of the pioneers here. Well, thank you, but I, I don't see myself as a pioneer by any stretch. I mean, like you mentioned, I was inspired by Beth and Debbie Shootaround, you know, David Siegel, uh, was around with Vision Swish podcast. But, you know, one thing that we're missing in our sport, and Rebecca and myself and Holly and Ryan and all that, you know, we talk about these kind of things all the time, but we don't have a space where there's debate, where there's talk about women's basketball, right? So, like, the game goes off. You're not, you're not going to studio to hear people talk about what you just saw. There's not a huge pregame show, you know, leading up with discussion. Like, where is the discussion on what's happening in, in our sport? Um, and because that's missing, I think there's a great opportunity in podcasts, and we don't always do a great job of, of that particular part of it. It's amazing because, you know, trying to figure out what to do when there's so much that needs to be covered that's not covered um, in terms of, you know, giving things a voice, like we sit down and we're like, okay, where do we go? Like, what's good? What's good? What's a good show for this week? You know, we're trying to keep it to 30 minutes. We're trying to do so much, but um I just think there needs to be more discussion. And you're right, Richard, in that, um, you know, the players have having a voice is important. We're actually doing something a little different this season um, with Around the Rim, where we're going to have some guest uh, players actually be the creative directors for shows. Um, they're going to be the hosts for Around the Rim from time to time. Uh, they're going to, you know, write up a show idea um, just to give them a space, give them a voice. I know one, one young lady who started a podcast, Erica McCall at Stanford. Um, I've been listening to some of her stuff and just trying to help. But so it's happening in small pockets. And there are players that want a podcast. But I think people just don't know that it's not as hard as you think. And Rebecca could probably speak to this because um, she and Steve have a fantastic podcast and like I get to at least dial in the ESPN I don't know how they're getting their <laughs> podcast you know this sounds so great and, and everything on the production side but um you know I think they do theirs in their basement and so definitely a missed opportunity <laughs> and maybe there needs to be more education on hey if you have something to say you know this is how you can put a podcast together you know Blake Dudonis has a podcast um that's really really good um Jump Around, I think, is the name of it. We're starting to see more women's basketball podcasts come, come to fruition, but I think it's a great space and one that I've enjoyed at least trying. I mean, we've got a podcast coming up this week on Vivian Stringer, and we're going to have Coach Cheney on, and we're going to have Marianne's family on, and we're going to have Christine Grant, Dr. Christine Grant on. I mean, to hear these people speak on this historical moment, actually hear their voices and let them tell the stories of our game. Um, you know, it, it's amazing. I mean, we had a lot of people on for Ann Donovan. We did a memorial um, podcast for Ann Donovan. I mean, her sister sent me an email and almost brought me to tears. And she said, hearing those stories about Ann, you know, were amazing for me and my family. Thank you. Like, I get chills just thinking about that. But to do that for our game, and, and it has not been consistently done, and we don't even do a great job of it, is just, you know, a small part of us getting 
coverage to where it can be for women's basketball. Uh, yeah, and, and and people obviously again should check out Lachana's podcast. So Rebecca, yours, uh, your podcast that you do with your husband Steve Russian, the sports writer, is Ball the Ball and Chain podcast. Uh, the descriptions for people who want to check that out is a. Uh, you two discuss marriage and other incendiary issues in the finished half of your basement. So check out the Ball and Chain podcast. But same for you, Rebecca. And we'll, we'll end on this. Um, you know, again, to me, it seems like this space is still rife for so many interesting um, types of things. Uh, and you're in the space now. La China's in the space. But I feel like we're only at the beginning of whatever the women's basketball evolution will be in podcasting. Yeah, I think one part that that would would be perfect where we could really um, use someone and it would be really entertaining with the, in particular WNBA player um, talking about all things in season and out, out of season. And we've talked about this before. Lachina and I have talked about this before. One way to explode the popularity of the WNBA was if there was a reality show that followed a team around and saw <laughs> everything yeah. that's going on in, in the lives of these women. Um, but I think somebody like Sue Bird, could you know mm-hmm. be phenomenal in this you know somebody who's just really smart very very funny really well connected uh you know to to have a podcast just to talk about you know whatever it is that they're talking about in the locker room you know there's a lot of intelligent conversation happening in WNBA locker rooms whether it's about social issues political issues whatever um and you know i think that would be one area WNBA players in particular where they could um, find a place to provide a lot of entertainment, to make people think, to really expose people more to the WNBA, and um, not only the, the, the action on the court, but the lives of these women off of the floor. You know, you talk about, you know, how interesting it would be if somebody did a documentary uh, about these players' lives in the offseason when they're overseas. It could involve that, talking about that. So I hope there's a WNBA player out there considering doing that, especially if it was somebody uh, you know, like Sue, a veteran player who's been around uh, a time or two, not only the league, but the world. Um, that would be a space where I think it would be fascinating and entertaining to listen to a podcast that that involves that. And can I just add one quick thing, Richard, um, if I can? Uh, I think it was Jewel Lloyd who sent a tweet to LeBron James uh, last week about, you know, I mean, we're seeing all of these NBA players with their own media companies, Right. And she's like, hey, LeBron, like, might be a good idea to send someone over and, uh, you know, do something around WNBA players overseas. So I thought, you know, that would be what a great connection, you know, that they have, you know, these media companies that are popping up. And LeBron, obviously, the biggest amongst them, but um, he loves the WNBA. I think that would be an amazing um, opportunity for exposure, you know, for, for, for these women. But I thought it was a great idea that Jewel Lloyd presented and maybe it'll get some, some traction. Yeah, I did see that. And I agree with you. I think she's, she's, she's onto it. Uh, Rebecca Lobo, as I mentioned, uh, she's been an ESPN college basketball and professional pro basketball analyst since 2004. Um, again, at the top, we gave her resume, uh, as LaChina and I are incredibly jealous. It would go on many, <laughs> many years. LaChina Robinson, uh, you can catch her work at ESPN, Fox Sports, Raycom's ACC, The Atlanta Dream, ESPNW, and check out her excellent podcast. Um, she basically gets uh, the best guests in the sport. Uh, you both know I have immense respect for you, um, and I've learned a lot from uh, listening to you guys and watching you. And, uh, and so I appreciate you guys coming on today. But more than that, I, just, I appreciate your passion, respect, and intellect for women's basketball. So thank you very much for coming on today to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate you having us. 
All right, my thanks to uh, Rebecca Lobo and LaChina Robinson, um, who, as you can tell from this podcast, are phenomenal when it comes to uh, uh, women's basketball and beyond. Uh, and I, I did hang out with Rebecca Lobo in uh, Beige- at the Beijing Olympics. I don't remember who she was covering it for. Or maybe she was just with Steve Russian, but whatever. She's just, like, an incredibly cool person, and uh, it was great to watch uh, people in the streets streets of Beijing recognize her uh, because she is a very famous person, at least in the basketball world. Uh, previous podcast guests go through them, include um, Troy Aikman, Kate Abdow, Rachel Nichols, Candace Parker, Jamel Hill, Chris Haynes, Renee Young of the WWE. Just check out the sports media uh, podcast page with Richard Deitch and uh, uh, check out previous podcasts. If you like this stuff, please leave a rating and a review. That's how it stays on the air. For Cadence 13, for Lou Pellegrino, this is Richard Deitch. I'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.